The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, February the 3rd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today are Europe correspondent Naomi O'Leary, our London editor Dennis Staunton, and political reporter Jack Horgan-Jones. You are all very welcome. Now, Naomi, I have to go to you first because we're going to be discussing the aftershocks from the European Commission's massive cock-up over Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol last week. But for the benefit of our listeners, can we just go back to last week and trace... What exactly happened and do we know why it happened? So listeners might have heard that AstraZeneca cut their expected deliveries to the EU in the first quarter quite substantially by 60% um, just a couple of weeks ago. And that drew quite a dramatic reaction by the EU in a bid to kind of get a hold of the situation or be seen to get a hold of the situation they introduced, set, announced they were going to introduce something called a vaccine transparency mechanism where all the pharmaceutical companies would have to say um, where their ex- exports were going, how much to who. And then um, that hardened basically over last week to become actually vaccine export controls where national governments would then have to give a permit for these exports to actually leave. Um, so this impetus is, um, you know, it's it's not something that Ireland would be particularly keen on, being a small state that relies on sort of free international free trade. But other EU member states were quite keen on it. And I suppose the idea was that this move in itself would sort of um, be, would incentivise pharmaceutical companies to deliver more doses to the EU and, and fulfil their contracts without it ever even having to be used, if you know what I mean. Um, but what happened was somebody in the commission on Friday seems to be have introduced into the regulation on Friday morning, um, knew enough about the circumstances of Northern Ireland to realise that there's an open border for goods there into Britain um, and that theoretically, you if you were trying to restrict an export of vaccines to Britain, it could, be, it could go through Northern Ireland as a back door. And so they knew enough to try and close that loophole and they knew enough to go to the Northern Irish Protocol and find this Article 16 and cite it, but they didn't have the political acumen to realise the, the implications of it, that it would have an explosive effect in undermining, um, you know, sort of the authority of the protocol in, in Northern Ireland because its opponents had been calling for Article 16 to be invoked for ages. Um, so this totally blindsided Dublin. And it seems to have happened uh, because not enough people were consulted on this. Uh, it was rushed through. You, you know, the genesis of it was only, you know, it was all done within about five days. And it was still being edited, you know, hours before it was released in the press conference. Commissioners only got a chance to look at the final draft about 30 minutes before the press conference was held. So it was all put out to the public really, really quickly. Um and as soon as it was out there, pretty much uh, Dublin realised that this had happened. There was frantic calls between Dublin and Brussels and the regulation was revised. So the commission says, look, you know, we fixed the error before it was definitive. This was only sort of an initial adoption in principle and the final adoption of the regulation doesn't include Article 16. But the very evoking of it obviously has done political damage already. 
And is the Commission right then when it says that it's really not such a big deal, that this was only a draft, a draft proposal and it never got anywhere near actually being implemented? Well, I mean, they're trying to save face. They're trying to play it down. But clearly we can see in the North that, you know, it's it has made it less of a taboo. Uh, the Democratic Unionist Party are now announcing a new campaign against the protocol. Um, it's put Arlene Foster in a difficult position because she's been saying, although I don't like it, we have to implement this protocol thing and arguing against the, you know, the uh, uh, the use of Article 16. So it's it's really a huge gift to opponents of the protocol and to Brexiteers. It's lived up to all of the worst stereotypes about the EU. Irish officials are really still shell-shocked that the whole thing happened. Now, before I go to Dennis to talk about the, the, the reaction in the United Kingdom, can I just ask you about, I mean, you'd have a pretty deep knowledge of the way these these processes work. And this seems to me to be an indication of a certain amount of panic that was going on in Brussels over the last week or so uh, in terms of the the, um, the perception of what had happened with the AstraZeneca deal uh, and perhaps a, a, a broader perception that the the EU is falling behind in terms of its vaccine rollout and, and, and all of that. But I, I mean, I do find it astonishing and maybe we overblow this because of Irish interest in it, but that this really crucial, very recently negotiated, highly sensitive element would be stomped over like this, with nobody having the nous just to say, hang on a sec, look at this, you can't do this. I think that it is seen as the biggest blunder that the European Commission has made in years. And we can see that it's, you know, there's been shock inside the Commission as well as outside of it. Like we had Michel Barnier sort of weighing in to, you know, express his unhappiness and to try and get the the thing reversed. So really the unhappiness is is quite profound. Um, there are certain sort of procedural reasons that contributed to the situation. So for example, this was an emergency procedure. That means that that allows the Commission to introduce something without formally consulting member states. Usually everything would have to go through member states, but in emergency procedure if something has to be done immediately um, if they need to take swift, swift action, they can temporarily introduce something um, and then, you know, they, the, the member states can kind of weigh in and say, take it out afterwards. Um, so there was that. There's also the fact that everyone's leaving at home, uh, working from home, and the written procedure adoption of this means that it's basically emailed to people. And if they don't object, then it's sort of deemed adopted. Um, but someone should have flagged it. Obviously, it's a massive error. Um, and the, the right people weren't brought in on it. It's, it's drawn out a lot of ire and unhappiness about the leadership style of Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. There seems to be a bit of pent up frustration within the Commission, according to fin- officials, um, that, you know, she keeps a very a tight silo style of leadership where, you know, that her sort of close inner team can exclude others sometimes from from decision making when it's a favoured policy of hers. Um, and, you know, you could you could see how such a style could, you know, contribute to this situation. And the other thing that she's been accused of is, is focusing overly on domestic politics in Germany. There's a lot of sort of turmoil because Chancellor Angela Merkel is coming to the end of her reign and rivals are sort of lining up to to replace her. Um, and in that context, Yves von der Leyen does seem to have quite an eye on the domestic situation in Germany, um, which possibly was her focus more than it should have been in this case. Dennis, this controversy could hardly have been constructed to cause more delight in the uh, 
Boris Johnson government. Um, I, you're reporting in the Irish Times today about what you describe as Michael Gove's uh, gloating in the House of Commons yesterday about it. Yeah, Michael Gove had a, a sort of an extended gloat uh, about, first of all, just describing exactly what the Commission had done. And he said, let me remind you what they were doing here. They were uh, trying to block the movement of vaccines uh, in the middle of a pandemic. And they were also then threatening to put a hard border on the island of Ireland and uh, to invoke Article 16 without any warning, without any consultation. And then he went on to list all the various people who had condemned it. Initially, though, actually, Downing Street wasn't gloating too much. They were, uh, you know, they were more concerned about, uh, you know, trying to resolve the issue uh, on on the Friday evening. What they're doing now, I think, though, is that this is being used as uh, so, as leverage in their negotiations with the Europeans about the implementation of the protocol. So Michael Gove wrote to Mara Sevcevich, his opposite number in this joint committee last night, uh, saying that they wanted to have an extension of these grace periods until 2023, various other demands. And so I think what they're doing is, it's not so much that uh, the British government wants to invoke Article 16 itself, although it keeps saying it could do so. And they certainly don't want to get rid of the protocol because they'd have to think of something new to put in in place instead. But I think they are using this moment and they're using the Commission's blunder in a way to try to get both Dublin and others on their side to try to say, look, you have now created this uh, unrest and this emergency in Northern Ireland, you have to help us to fix it now. And so it may be that, that works for them. Uh, there seems to Naomi will be able to say more about that, but there seems to be a little bit of resistance coming out of the Commission in the last 24 hours about making too many concessions. But anyway, that's certainly what they're going to look for. And I'll ask Naomi about that in a second, but before I do, can I can I bring you in, Jack? It, 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 I, it seems to me that the, the Irish government would probably favour, wouldn't it, some loosening of the of the schedule, the, the the grace period, which Dennis refers to. I mean, he wants to take, from an Irish perspective, we just want to take the heat out of this. Uh, we want to get rid of the confrontation which has been building up around these these issues at the at the ports in Northern Ireland, for example. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and I think that you can see the unrest, I think, within unionism, breaking water in things like the graffiti campaign, which... If we are to to believe the the PSNI, and there's no reason why we shouldn't, they don't seem to have their roots in any kind of you know organized physical force uh, loyalism or unionism. It seems to be more kind of ad hoc than that. And we saw it against the the port workers, and we saw it against Leo Varadkar as well. A particularly disgraceful incident um, with with a threat uh, against the Tonister written on on the side of a, a shop in in the north. So I think that the DUP will be particularly sensitive to the idea that it needs to speak to the base now that as you say it is it is vulnerable to uh to to the more the more rabid extremes of the unionist movement and and they'll need to to kind of coalesce and and strengthen up that base because they they they're they're particularly vulnerable and and you know recent polling would also suggest that they may be vulnerable to to losing the position of first minister to Sinn Féin, which would make them even more nervous, I think, than the prospect of losing the authoritative stance which they hold within unionism um, and loyalism. Naomi, Dennis referred to the possibility of some resistance uh, in Brussels to the idea of extending grace periods or in some other ways relaxing relaxing the, the the movement of goods through ports over the next while, where would that resistance come from? Is there a sort of a hardline uh, element with, within the Commission which doesn't want to make any concessions on those kind of issues? 
I mean, the same imperatives that existed that caused the creation of the protocol in the first place still exist. And that's about protecting the integrity of the single market. That's something that unites all the 27 members of the EU states. And it's not going anywhere. Um, Having said that, they are on the back foot. And I think this is a difficult situation for the Commission because it's so highly political. And this whole affair has just... It kind of illustrated how ill-suited it is to wade in to a highly politicised situation in Northern Ireland. And yet, you know, the the sort of implications of the protocol are that it's sort of forced to. Um, And there's a couple of sort of concerning things. One is like, if you're someone who wants to disrupt the workings of the protocol in Northern Ireland, if you're someone who wants to stop that from happening, this action of writing threats on a wall and graffiti um, is... Is, has been disturbingly effective in a way because, you know, it immediately halted checks, the staff with, were withdrawn, and it's a very low bar of action, you know, for people to take, um, which I think is quite concerning. Um, I th- I'm sure that, you know, having being on the back foot now, the European Commission, I'm sure, will try to stress that this situation exists at the demand of Britain because it it wanted Brexit and indeed at the demand of the DUP because they rejected the idea of having, um, you know, the whole EU with, or sorry, the whole UK within a kind of protocol arrangement where there wouldn't be checks on the Irish Sea. And they chose to support the hardest possible Brexit that made an Irish Sea border inevitable. Um, So I think that they will they will press that, but it's a delicate situation, and I can see why there's a, there there would be an argument for um, ceding at least something to calm the situation. It is a little bit disturbing, isn't it, Dennis? That um, the local council in the in the Larne area withdrew those workers um, very quickly. That council would be you know, it's a union as part of Northern Ireland. Uh, those so it would be controlled by parties which are opposed to the protocol, uh, primarily the the DUP, mind you, as I understand it. There were European officials who uh, who were also withdrawn as well, but you know if you can write a bit of graffiti on a wall and you uh, and the effect of that is to shut down this complex protocol which was negotiated so painfully and uh, over the last few years it doesn't make it very stable, does it, for the future? And perhaps you know it would serve to encourage others to try and disrupt it in various ways. There is some dispute over whether the political reaction was the right one. And uh, just a week or so ago, there were senior officers from the PSNI who were talking in the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee about the uh, about loyalist unrest and unhappiness. But they were saying very clearly that this uh, was not linked particularly to organised paramilitaries, they said partly because of the fact of the lockdowns that these people couldn't really organise, although there were masked men assembling in East Belfast last night. But, uh, but you know, so there is a question of whether this was an overreaction, that, uh, as you say, it was, uh, you know, nobody knows who did this, but it sounds like it wasn't a particularly organised um, sequence of events, and certainly the reaction, uh, you know, you having said all of that, I mean, it's quite clear that... The, elements in the DUP. The DUP is uh, is kind of divided on in its approach to the protocol. And Arlene Foster appears to be divided within herself. 
And so that you find there are elements of the DUP uh, that want to try to make the protocol work. They want to fix the problems with it. And so Gavin Robinson, for example, uh, yesterday in Parliament was very much striking this tone. We need to show that the constitutional route to resolving these things works. Whereas then you had someone like Carla Lockhart, who's on the right wing of the party, uh, saying, no, no, we've got to uh, just uh, unite unionism against this protocol, tear it apart. And then uh, Arlene Foster subsequently made this statement where she said that they were going to uh, try to form a pan-unionist front against the protocol and they would not cooperate in any of the north-south manifestations of it and so thereby hardening the position. Whereas Arlene Foster only a few days ago was trying to work with the British government to try to make the protocol work. And the British government have been hoping that they could encourage the DUP in uh, this more constructive approach. And I think what they will hope now is that if they can find through these negotiations with Brussels some kind of ladder for the DUP to climb down, that they can then Uh, And this also would be an argument that Britain would be making to the European side is that actually, you know, now we have this political situation where uh, we really need to do something to neutralize it because otherwise you are destabilizing the whole settlement. And it is, frankly, both in the British interest and in the European interest that the protocol should work and that it should work in a way that doesn't cause unhappy disruption to the lives of people in Northern Ireland over things like moving their pets or ordering plants or getting their parcels delivered. All of these things, if you can find a way around them that uh, doesn't uh, completely wreck the integrity of the single market, then I think both sides would feel as if that was worthwhile. How are things going in the UK, Dennis? I get the impression, it's not just Michael Gove's gloating, that the, you know, the vaccine rollout, by comparison with ourselves here and uh, across the rest of Europe, is moving at a much higher speed. Um, It's possible to lift one's head and see key kind of, uh, I suppose, KPIs being hit, um, the most vulnerable parts of the population all all having been back vaccinated by by March, uh, well over half the population by the the start of the summer. Um, That must have uh, political knock-on effects, does it, for the Johnson government? Is there anticipation of a vaccine bounce? There should be. I mean, certainly there's no question but that the uh, the British vaccine rollout is perceived in Britain as a great success. And it stands in contrast with the performance of the government with regards to the pandemic generally. Britain has had more than 100,000 people die of coronavi- of the coronavirus. And so it's, you know, it, it has handled most elements of the, um, of the pandemic badly. But on the vaccine, they appear to have made uh, the right decisions and some of the gambles that they took appear to have paid off. So in contrast to the Europeans, but like the Americans, they decided to go for speed They also calculated that they were not going to be in a position to negotiate about price, so they just offered whatever it took. They backed an awful lot of candidates. And then they also, uh, again, like the Americans, agreed to indemnify the pharmaceutical companies against uh, litigation if there were side effects. And so, and all of those gave them an advantage in terms of time. They also made some important kind of industrial policy decisions, like, for example, pushing Oxford towards AstraZeneca, which is this Anglo-Swedish company. The Zeneca part is the pharmaceutical wing of the old Imperial Chemicals, ICI, formerly the biggest company in Britain. So it's very much, uh, you know, they were securing their supply. They were thinking, they were anticipating potential problems, including connected with Brexit. 
and uh, potential problems of, you know, at borders if, say, for example, there was a no-deal Brexit and you weren't going to be able to get your supply. And so I haven't seen, uh, you know, nobody has has published the contract that they uh, that the British uh, negotiated with AstraZeneca, but everybody who knows anything about it says that it is much more copper-fastened in terms of very specific delivery uh, targets and promises than the European one was. And so in that sense, they made the right decision with regard to that. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't compare very well. Uh, the European example doesn't compare very well or it doesn't to European benefit, does it, Naomi? I mean, I was looking at an English translation of an interview that Angela Merkel did with ZDF, I think, yesterday. Um, and she said, she def- obviously defended, you know, the um, European vaccination programme, but she said that the comparison um, with the speed of the rollout in the United States and the United Kingdom rankles. I'm not sure what the German word was, but the English translation was rankles. So there is a sense of that Europe hasn't performed as as one might hope. And these kinds of issues of uh, lengthy negotiations over price, lengthy negotiations over liability, um, in retrospect now, and hindsight's a wonderful thing, but in retrospect, they do look as if that, that in the United States and the United Kingdom, they treated this whole thing as the emergency it is, um, perhaps more appropriately than happened in Europe. Yeah, I think that they would probably, well, I know they argue in their defense that, you know, they made such decisions for good reasons. They wanted the pharmaceutical companies to accept liability. Um, They wanted, they didn't want to go down an emergency approval route. Um, They wanted to go down the usual conditional marketing approval route of the European Medicines Agency, albeit at a sped up pace, um, which simultaneously grants approval across all EU27 rather than emergency approval, which would have been ad hoc, case-by-case national decisions um, that would have led to incoherence. It's also true as well that, you know, they're tr- they're, the, the alternative isn't great. If you had 27 nations deciding to individually negotiate with pharmaceutical companies, probably Germany would have come out well out of that. But, you know, I don't know about smaller countries. You know, those with big, big... Uh, pockets and big clout would have potentially done better under that arrangement, but many countries would not have. Um, So these are the kind of defences for the EU. They took different choices, um, and I think that they believe that they took those choices for good reasons, Um, but currently the timing is awful because we're in the middle of this terrible wave of COVID-19. You know, there's this life and death issue where, you know, people are dying who, who perhaps wouldn't have if vaccines had arrived earlier. Um, so definitely there is, you know, a lot of criticism about the EU's approach. And there's projections we report this morning, Jack, that uh, across the EU um, and in Ireland, the projections are that there will be sufficient vaccines to vaccinate 50% of the population um, by the end of June, I think it is, which is a slightly more precise target. We've been kind of struggling with all these various ministers coming out and making vague pronouncements about what might be achievable by the summer, which begs the question of what the summer is and when it happens and when it's over. Um, So we now do have a clear commitment, I suppose, to 50% vaccination by the 30th of June. I wouldn't go that far. It's clear for now. An aspiration then, an aspiration. Aspirations, goals, caveats, you know, like, I mean, I think if we're to extract one key piece of information about uh, how vaccine rollouts or how this vaccine rollout is going to work from the last couple of weeks, it's that you can really only kind of trust 
you know the mo in the, the 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 things that are happening in the next kind of couple of weeks or even less you know you can you can kind of trust that once we get vaccines into the freezer we have it we seem to have a, a system that certainly at these volumes anyway can and will get them into arms in in fairly short order um but there 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 are just so many open questions over over the 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 supply now uh, the vaccine task force in fairness to them they do seem fairly confident that as we head into the second quarter of the year, there will be a, a big upsurge in in supply and you'll get more vaccines being licensed more quickly. But I mean, it wasn't so long ago, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when we were saying that we we're going to get all healthcare workers and residents in long-term care institutions vaccinated by the end of March and uh, large cohorts of those actually vaccinated by the end of February. And you have a combination of wobbles from all three companies that are currently producing approved drugs um, in the last uh, two weeks, which undermines all of that. So I think that, that the, the, the phrase that, that, that springs to mind is that, you know, this may not be a bug of the system. This is a feature of the system. Um, when you have such intense competition, when you have such a huge ramp up in production demand for vaccines, there are inevitably going to be problems and these may not be confined to the early phases of it. In fact, there's no evidence to suggest that there will be, you know. So I think that people kind of need to to get used to a, a large degree of uncertainty around this. And that that creates a big political problem for the government, right? Because you have this demand on the one hand from people who are quite reasonably want to have some degree of sureness about when they're going to get back to uh, something resembling a normal life enabled by vaccines. And then on the other hand, you have that overriding uncertainty and lack of clarity on exactly when deliveries are going to happen. I mean, we're still waiting for, I mean, we, we still only get 48 hour prior confirmation of when the doses are coming into the country. It's not as if we have this big, long, predictable runway. So you get situations thereby where you have the Minister of Health standing up in the doll and saying these things. And while they were heavily caveated, no one extracts the caveats about the timelines. They just take the headline that everyone's going to be uh, vaccinated by September. And then that promise, as it was characterized, kind of falls asunder and, 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 that becomes a problem for him. It becomes a problem for the government more widely. And it becomes a problem for people kind of losing faith in the capacity of the system to roll this thing out in the medium and long term. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would accept all that. But on the other hand, I think maybe, you know, the fault lies with us, by which I mean both the media and the population at large, is we need to take on board those questions of contingency and that these aren't cast iron guarantees because they can't be if we've learned anything at all over the last year. Um, we know that that's not the case. And does, is a little bit of the political heat not taken out of it for the moment anyway, given that the constraint exists at the supply point as opposed to at the distribution point, which is something that the government could be blamed for if it wasn't working working right. Which I, whereas I think most people understand that we have little or, little or no control over the amount of vaccine that's coming into the country every week or every month for the moment. I think they do. But I think when in the final reckoning, are people going to blame themselves? No. Irish people aren't in the political habit of, of blaming Brussels. You know, who do you, who do you who do you kick when you want to kick Brussels? <laughs> um, and so the, the most proximate and therefore the most at-risk political entity that will have to deal with the fallout of any of this is is the current government. So while people, there'll there, there, be a kind of, I think, 
a degree of cognitive dissonance, whereas whereby people will accept the logical argument that supply issues originate elsewhere other than Dublin, they will nonetheless vent and direct their political spleen at the most convenient political object, which will be which will be the government and, and you know, most and more immediately than that, the Minister for Health. Dennis, can I ask you, I mean, in the United Kingdom, given that the Johnson government made a bags of things and has the worst numbers in terms of mortality over the over the last year in, in, in Europe, but now is ahead of the game with the vaccines, Johnson always seemed too keen to overpromise a return to normality as the as the crisis unfolded last year. What's the expectation um, that of how the UK will start to open or reopen as we get into spring and into summer. And obviously, we have a particular interest in this because we are close neighbours and some of those decisions could have a direct impact on us, particularly uh, in the relationship between Northern Ireland and Ireland. In a way, at the moment, the messaging is fairly straightforward because uh, you know the government is able to say, look, we need to keep this lockdown going, keep it as tight as possible, but it's going to be the last one. And look, we're vaccinating like crazy and there's hope and there's light at the end of the tunnel. Johnson's problem may be not that he's overpromising and underdelivering as he as he has done. The new regime running Downing Street is particularly uh, keen not to overpromise and underdeliver. And so, if anything, they've been underpromising with regard to the vaccine. And it's quite clear that the vaccine rollout is going ahead of uh, of schedule, and therein lies a problem because if, for example, by the end of February you have everybody over sixty vaccinated and you're already moving on to people uh, who are you know between 50 and 60 and at the rate they're going right now that's not impossible but certainly once you're getting into March at that stage he's going to come under enormous pressure from the libertarian element of the Conservative Party, which has been fairly quiet until now because they basically accepted this agreement. Okay, we're going to sit here and wait until then. But then, but what they're saying now is, for example, that he's, you know, the government has a target of the 8th of March. They say not before the 8th of March will schools reopen. But in Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon said yesterday that it's possible that some Scottish school children might go back on the 22nd of February. So that already has started, given that the vaccine rollout is slower in Scotland than it is in England. Uh, some Conservatives saying, well, if we really are getting ahead like this, then can we consider opening the schools a little bit earlier? And the next thing will be, and also, uh, you know, now that, you know, we have protected the NHS, and if you see the numbers of cases and the numbers of hospitalizations and deaths coming down dramatically, which you ought to, after the vaccination program continues to roll out, then uh, the argument for maintaining the lockdown will be more difficult to to make. Now, obviously, you have the problem of the variant mutant strains. You've got the fact that if you still have a, a lot of the virus in the community, then there is a very good argument for uh, for keeping the restrictions. But that's going to be difficult for uh, Johnson to make to Conservative MPs who are very, very eager to get this bounty of the vaccine very quickly and to reopen in the spring. There's also, don't forget, uh, local elections and uh, Scottish and Welsh elections scheduled for May. The government would love to go ahead with those in May because it thinks that it would have something of a bounce from the vaccine programme. And uh, But of course, to, for that to be successful, they'd really have to have had about a month 
of businesses being open, of things being back to normal. And that might be cutting it a bit tight. So so I think that, you know, in a way, the success of the vaccine program could create some headaches for Boris Johnson in the next few weeks as he tries to work out exactly how do you exit. And then there's a second question, which is if Britain has a vaccine program which is way ahead of everybody else, how do you protect that? And that's where they're starting to try to talk about quarantine and hotel quarantine. And they uh, seem to be, uh, you know, the government, uh, Boris Johnson particularly, is reluctant to go the whole hog and say, we're going to have uh, compulsory hotel quarantine for everybody who comes into the country. And so, but they're going to have to try to find some way of uh, sealing off the island in a way so that they can enjoy the fruits of this vaccination program if they do in sometime in the summer. All those kind of dynamics, Jack, are paralleled by similar dynamics in Ireland. There isn't quite the libertarian wing of the government parties, but there is. there are sectoral interests which have been extremely quiet for the last five or six weeks since the third wave kicked in. But I think we can anticipate that they'll come back onto the airwaves as we get into March and there's the debate about reopening some things um, happens. The question of quarantine is is quite fraught, uh, as it is in the UK, isn't it? And there's a lot of criticism um, of the government strategy there. Uh, most of the opposition parties now seem to be signed up to some form of zero COVID or whatever you want to call it. So that's all going to be a point of major political contention over the next six to eight weeks, isn't it? I think it is. First of all, you're right. There's a kind of detente at the moment between all the different kind of parties that between them comprise the narrative about the closing down and reopening. So that would be, you know, nefish, the public health kind of voices, uh, the government, and then the industry groups, the trade associations, the business lobby, um, and just to some extent, the, the unions who maybe aren't quite on board at the moment. But those certainly those first three are all broadly speaking on the same page um, because everyone effectively got such a tremendous shock during December after December and the scale of infection was so enormous and it put the hospital system under such pressure. I think it is it is correct to say that, you know, there's only so long that that kind of uh, fear-based consensus will survive. We're now probably in a place where we're going to routinely hit in around a thousand cases a day for the next little while there are concerns that that may stall at that level but if it keeps dropping i think then you will start to see people come out and make their pitch i think the first sector you'll see make their pitch is construction they'll say uh, and and they do seem to have the stats to back this up to a greater or lesser extent they'll say that you know transmission doesn't seem to really happen particularly on 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 sites that are you know, in the stage where you're still building the outside of the building as opposed to finishing the inside. Um, they'll, they'll also argue that it's it's a fairly substantial part of the economy. And I think that they will be pushing against, against an open door at Marion Street and Department of Public Expenditure and Reform and Finance there um, in that it generates a huge amount, not only of kind of corporation tax, but a huge amount of, of, of employment and payroll tax as well. It, it's a nice way in one fell swoop to take a lot of people off the pup and put them back to work very quickly. So I think that you will then see 
uh, the, 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 the likes of non-essential retail come out and say, well, you know, we weren't supposed to be closed again at all after Christmas. You kind of made these these vague, fuzzy promises about about never going back to a full a proper level five. Where are we on that? You know, so there, there'll be a real challenge for government there. And the question will be whether it moves from from its its, its now established stance of uh, of locking down and pushing down an aggressive suppression. And um, the other part that you mentioned around around quarantine, I, I think like my sense is that there is actually a real political danger here for the government, not in terms of there being a, a gap between what they want to do and what the people want in that they, they've kind of broadly moved in the same direction. You may quibble over exactly the measures that they said they're going to put in place and, and what might constitute a zero COVID approach, which notionally seems to have, have some degree of support, certainly amongst opposition parties. But I think the real the real danger for them is the gap between announcing this at the end of January and saying we're going to do X, Y and Z and actually bringing it into into force. I mean, one minister was saying to me yesterday that their fear is that something that is announced in January may not actually be in place until March. And then you have this dynamic where there's an open goal for uh, the opposition all month long to say you're not making progress on this, you're not making progress on that. Meanwhile, there's all this low-hanging fruit in terms of the travel statistics, in terms of, you know, X amount of people came in from South Africa over the weekend or Y amount of people were fined. You know, it's clearly not not acting as a disincentive or you don't have the border set up properly. So, you know, yeah, you, ha- you have a, a, a prospect in sight here of the government just shipping body blows on this over and over and over again. And I think that'll be really, really difficult. And I think that's why you saw at cabinet yesterday, Leo Varadkar, who probably is from that more kind of libertarian or laissez-faire intellectual tradition within it, within his own party saying, you know, I have concerns that we're not shutting down and curtailing effectively the freedom of movement quickly enough. And and I think that, that he recognizes that political risk. And, and, and I think that also speaks to, the extent to which people are willing to move away from their own political instincts, their own political philosophies in order to 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 try and actually stamp down this wave and and also keep political support for their own parties in so doing. Naomi, can I ask you, in, in the Benelux where you are, are exactly the same debates taking place about issues like quarantine, about what should be opened, about what should be closed? We see things like the, the riots happening in the in the Netherlands protesting against against closures. Are the same dynamics at play or do they work differently because of the the, the the many land borders and sort of, I suppose, different social structures perhaps as well? What we've seen is a sea change in attitudes among governments to this because everyone has been so spooked by these new variants. Um, this has really caused... Um, like a dramatic shift in emphasis among several European governments. Um, we've had Germany warning that they may go ahead and close their borders. Belgium just outright outright banned tourism, um, which is really quite something for a country with so many borders. And that is the home of the European institutions, you know, for whom sort of freedom of movement is this like, you know, deep political commitment. Um so you know, it's it, it's it really the 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 idea that new variants, um, perhaps not even the ones we have now, um, although there is um, some evidence that the South African strain is a little, the vaccines are a little bit less effective against it, um, but more ones may emerge that could jeopardize this entire all of this enormous effort and money that's been put into getting vaccines could be undermined by new variants that are introduced 
um, that then, you know, people can catch even if they've been vaccinated. Um, and I think the more, you know, it's worth pointing out that the more the virus spreads, the more, um, the higher the rates of infection are, the more chances there are for such for such um, variants to emerge. Um, so that really has created a, a sea change. I would have said previous to this that on the continent in general, there was more of an acceptance of open borders and free travel, but that's changed, I would say. Um, I would say in, since Christmas, more or less. We should leave it there today. So thanks very much to Naomi, to Dennis uh, and to Jack and to our producer, Declan Conlon. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can mail us as always at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. Mm-hmm.